Good morning, Hope Jersey City. It is such a great privilege for me to be with you this morning. I want to thank my dear friend, Pastor Craig Okpala, for the opportunity to be with you to worship Jesus together. We're going to go straight to Scripture. We're going to be reading the gospel, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18 and onward. It says this, This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would open your word to us. Would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you fill every home, every heart? And would you glorify Jesus? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, many years ago, uh, the great poet and playwright William Shakespeare posed a question. The question that he posed was this, what is in a name? And he went on to say, if a rose by any other name, would it still be a rose? And what he was getting at is this dynamic tension of, is the name of something the defining uh, power over it, or is the essence of something actually greater than the name? Can a rose still be a rose if it's called something else? Now, besides him kind of having this philosophical debate about names, I find it very interesting, the question of names, when we go to Scripture, because what we find in the Scriptures is that there is great significance when a person is named in the Bible. Their names carry weight because the name would often convey their family lineage, uh, a characteristic that they carried, or sometimes would even foretell the life that they were supposed to live. But that carries an even greater weight when it comes to the names of God. If you study the scriptures throughout the Old and New Testament, at various moments, God reveals himself specifically by declaring a name. And when he would declare his specific name, it would be a window into his character. We would see the essence of who he is. And at this moment in scripture, we come in contact with the name of the Messiah, Jesus. And we're going to unpack that this morning, because in this text, we find that God's people are in the midst of a very hopeless moment. They're living under captivity to the Roman power at this time, and the people of promise, the covenant people, have, much, have very little hope for the future. They're under siege. And what we read at this moment, that there's this couple, Joseph and Mary, that are engaged at this moment, and a scandal erupts because it's found out that Mary is with child and it's not Joseph's child. We read that Joseph was a God-fearing man, a kind-hearted man, and actually he wanted to end the relationship with Mary in private because this was a, a situation that would bring not just social disgrace to Mary, but actually it ran, it ran the risk of Mary potentially being stoned to death according to Jewish law and custom. And so Joseph is trying to deal with this really difficult situation in private. But we read that at this moment, 
the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and lets him know that this child that's growing in Mary's womb is not a human child, it's not an ordinary child, that actually the child that's growing is conceived in her by the Holy Spirit, that this child is the Messiah, the awaited promised Savior, the hope of Israel. And at this moment, the angel declares that he is to name this child Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Now, I, before we go further, I think it's important to kind of address the fact that the name Jesus in our culture and even among Christians has sadly lost some of its luster. We've become way too comfortable with this powerful, glorious name. In fact, the name Jesus sometimes can be a curse word, a, a, something you say when you're frustrated. But this name has incredible power and significance because when the angel declares that his name was to be Jesus and that he would save his people from their sins, this is good news for all of humanity. See, when God would reveal his character, he would reveal it by the, by the declaration of a name. At, at various moments, he declared himself as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider, Jehovah Sitkanu, the Lord our righteousness. But at this moment, we are finding out that our Messiah is to be named Jesus. And it's interesting that Jesus is actually the Greek translation for the Hebrew name Joshua. Now Joshua, historically for the Jewish people, would carry significant weight and respect for them because Joshua was used of God to bring the Jewish nation out of the wilderness into the Promised Land by crossing them over the Jordan River. And so when they would hear the name Jesus and make the connection that Jesus is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua, already bells would be ringing that this Jesus has a special mission, a special significance, that like Joshua, he would carry God's people into the promised land of salvation, of redemption, of renewal. But it goes further than just making this connection of the name Jesus with the name Joshua in the Scriptures. Because when you look in the Gospels and you see Jesus in full display, how He interacted with people, how He loved, how He, how he, how he invited people into His life and showed dignity and value to everyone He met through His miracles and His teachings, we come away with the fullest picture of the character of God. See, because when you see Jesus in the flesh, you finally get a, a visible, physical image of the invisible God. You see him in full display. And what we come to discover is that this Jesus is not just glorious, but that he's altogether beautiful. That to see Jesus in the Gospels, when you see his character and you understand who he is, it absolutely melts the human heart. I remember years ago, a friend of mine, he went on a missionary trip to the former USSR. This was during the time where the Iron Curtain was up and missionary work was strictly prohibited. You had to smuggle in Bibles to go. And he tells us of stories of being pursued by the KGB as they were trying to meet with the underground church leaders. Through some series of events, they found themselves in an audience with uh, in a jail with one of the underground church leaders that had been arrested for preaching the gospel 
for about 15 years. He had suffered at the hands of, of the government severe things, awful punishments. And alone in jail for the most part, every now and then they would allow certain visitors. In this meeting, this guy would just, uh, my friend says that he would drop the most amazing knowledge. Just the kind of wisdom that you can only glean from suffering. But my friend told me that he never forgot that as this guy was talking through a translator, whenever this man would say the name Jesus, he would choke up. He would have a moment of deep emotion and affection. Because for him, Jesus was not just some doctrine. Jesus was not a historical figure. Jesus was his best friend, the lover of his soul. I think it's important for us as we are unpacking the significance of the name of Jesus and get a, a view into the character of God through this name and what it means for you and I to not just stop at mentally accruing some information about Jesus, but to actually gaze upon him to, a, to the degree that you and I would fall in love with our great God. So his name, Jesus, reveals his character, but it also reveals our need. See, whenever God would reveal his name in the scriptures, not only would he reveal who he is, but by virtue of that fact, he would also reveal our deepest needs. And so if the name Jesus reveals that he is the one that's supposed to bring humanity into God's promise, and when we see him in the Gospels, we see the image of God, if that's what's being revealed to us about him, what's being revealed to us about us? And what we find out is that what's being revealed is that Jesus reveals to us that we need to be saved. Specifically, that we need to be saved from our sins. Now, I realize that that might be offensive or, or difficult to wrestle with. Uh, for us, we're independent people. If you've been in America for any period of time, the rugged individualism in our culture rubs off on everybody. And so the idea that you need to be saved can kind of rub against the grain. But when Jesus reveals himself as he is and he lets us know that our greatest need, that what he has come to do for us is to save us, we would do well to pay attention to what this actually means. And if he's come to save us, what is he saving us from? He's saving us from our sins. So if you were hung up on the idea that you need to be saved, you're probably even more hung up on the idea that you need to be saved from sins. Because there's probably no other word uh, from Scripture that has more baggage in people's minds than the word sin. Because unfortunately, at various times, the church has often weaponized this word and, and used it in ways that have actually not brought people closer to God. But at the, same, at the same token, we can't shirk from this biblical word and the connotation, the meaning, and, and the message that God's trying to convey to us when Jesus says, I've come to save you from your sins. Now, the word sin or sins, even though it's, it's just one word, actually in the original language of the scriptures, it has many different meanings. I'm going to give you three very quickly. One meaning is this idea of missing the mark. And so if you imagine someone with a bow and arrow and there's a target off, off, off at a distance and they're trying to hit the target, that's their intention. But at the end, when they release the bow, it doesn't hit the target. 
So this idea of missing the mark communicates that sin often is you have one intention, but you've done something else. Can anyone relate? How many times we have the best of intentions and yet the result is off-center? Or people that have hurt us and offended us can often say, that's not what I intended, but it doesn't take away the fact that there's a sting, that there's a hurt that was left. That's one idea of sin. Another idea of sin is the concept of trespass. Now, if you've ever seen kind of a property or a lot that's roped off with, with a, a metal fence and it says no trespassing, it, this concept of sin is this idea that there's this, this barrier, this line that you are not supposed to cross. And so sin is this idea that, that God has a boundary set for us and that we're to stay away from it. And sin happens when we cross that boundary, when we don't respect God's commands and his order. But there's this other idea of sin, and it's this idea that's connected to the word iniquity. Now, an iniquity is, is more than just I had an intention and I ended up here rather than where I intended, or there was this boundary and I kind of stepped over it, but I won't do that again. An iniquity is actually a heart bent. It means that there's a predisposition in your heart to lean in a certain direction away from God's commands. Sin is nuanced. It has all these layers. And at the end of the day, in our most honest moments, we must come face to face with the fact that we are all victims and victimizers of sin. That it infects everything and it impacts us. And so when Jesus says he's come to save us from our sins, this is the most incredible good news. But it would be wise for us to be aware that Jesus isn't the only one that's promising to save us from our sins. In fact, our culture tries to save us from our sins, but they come far short. Their attempts to save us from our sins look like you are being saved from your sins through working and acquiring possessions or, or amassing accolades. You, you gather a name for yourself. It, it, it's it's a working toward a salvation from sin through all this effort. But there's another way that our culture actually deals with sin, where it's more than just what you do to kind of work out of it. It's more than just uh, acquiring education and, and being enlightened and trying to be a morally better person. Actually, our culture has another response to sin, and that is cancel culture. If, you've, if you're aware of this concept, it's this idea that if our culture finds out that you've done anything disagreeable with the standards of our times, whether in the present or in the past, our culture's response to that sin is to try to remove you at all costs, from the face of everything. And so it's an interesting thing that even though our culture is largely anti-God, yet it tries to assume the role of God in trying to save us from our sins, and it's either trying to educate us and, and, and give us uh, uh, comforts and possessions and, and a path of working out of our sins, or it's just trying to completely cancel us when our sins present themselves. But neither of them present redemption or hope for the sinner. There's no cure that society offers to us for our sins. Only Jesus and Jesus alone has the cure. As I read this text, for me, I really wanted to dive in and to understand, Jesus, if you are the one that's to save us from our sins, what does that actually mean in practical life, everyday living? 
What's the difference that's supposed to make? I want to leave you with this. When Jesus saves us from our sins, I think it's helpful to think of it in these terms. He saves us from the penalty and power of sin, but he doesn't save us from the pull of sin. What do I mean by that? See, what Jesus has accomplished for us in the bloody cross, in the empty tomb, is that he has forever, once and for all, removed the penalty of sin. Why, that's amazing news for you and I to receive is that, because that means that if you are in Christ, even when you sin and struggle, you don't stand before God based on your good works. You stand before God based on the fact that he has removed the ultimate penalty of your sin. You stand guiltless and faultless because of his righteousness. He's saved us from the penalty of sin. But we also see in Scripture, in Romans 8, Galatians 5, that by the virtue of the Spirit living inside of us, we have been saved from the power of sin. That now the Spirit empowers us, gives us the resources to walk away from sin. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but you can sense the power and presence of God guiding you and empowering you to love, to forgive to do something supernatural that you know is coming from a source other than yourself. That's what he saved us from. But he hasn't saved us from the pull of sin. I think it's important to acknowledge that, that even though Jesus has saved us from the penalty and the power of sin, every single day you and I still feel the pull of sin. You feel the pull when you see a social media post that kind of gets under your skin when you have a a difficult interaction with your spouse or your child's acting up or situation with your in-laws or a difficult boss or co-worker, we feel the pull at so many different levels. Yet the good news is that Jesus is present with us to save us in the moment-by-moment situations where we feel the pull of sin. Here's what I want to leave you with. Anytime you feel the pull of sin, you can call on the name of Jesus. You can call on the one who said he would save us from our sins. Anytime you feel guilt and shame and condemnation, you can remind yourself that he has saved you from the penalty of sin. By walking with Jesus, you can remind yourself and equip yourself to be filled with the power to walk away from the cravings of sin. Because he alone is the one who has come to save us. I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus or not, but if you're not a follower of Jesus listening to this, I want to encourage you to do what I did many years ago when I was 14 years old. I called on the name Jesus. I asked him to save me, to rescue me, to make me alive through his spirit. And he came immediately and redeemed me and, and, and helped me to understand what it means to follow him. But what I've realized since then and up until the present moment, that there's not a day that Jesus stops saving us. You and I are dependent on his salvation. And right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe this season has brought so much burden to you and pain and difficulty, and you struggle to pick your head up above the waters, I want to encourage you today that you and I can call on the name of Jesus. Call upon him in prayer. Call upon him in the the secret recesses of your heart. Whisper his name when the pull of sin comes. Declare his name when difficulty arises. 
Exalt His name in prayer as you declare His authority over your situations and allow His salvation to truly enrapture every part of your life.